Anyone here have a nativity scene in their home? Anyone? Anyone have more than three nativity scenes in their home? Anyone have more than six nativity scenes in their home? Jeannie still got her hand up. Where are we? We have five? Yeah. Yeah, anybody have like 12 nativity scenes in their home? Anybody? No? Nativity scenes are sort of synonymous with Christmas. And just for a little while this morning, let's do a little thought experiment. Uh, Think about your nativity scene in your mind. What do you see there in your head? Of course, the center of every nativity scene, starting with Christmas Eve and not a day before Christmas Eve, starting with Christmas Eve, the center of the nativity scene is a baby, right? And think about the way that baby is pictured, typically lying in a wooden box, looking remarkably clean and none the worse for having just been birthed. All right, near the child is a representation of Mary. She looks remarkably serene. She looks very put together for a woman who had just carried a child in her womb for nine months and then delivered that child with only the help of her husband, who in our nativity scenes looks remarkably serene and put together for a husband who just helped deliver a child. (laughs) You also have animals, right? There's donkeys in nativity scenes. There's sheep, maybe a goat or two. Usually not any pigs. Took you a little while. (laughs) Sometimes maybe you have a little drummer boy, but I can't find the guy in the scriptures. (laughs) There's at least an angel, at least one angel, maybe a few shepherds. And if you're like most people, you have an additional few folks just sort of standing around. they, they, They most likely... Uh, have camels with them and maybe some boxes in their hands. They may be dressed sort of weird. These three odd characters, right? These three odd characters, most commonly referred to as kings, are a famous part of our nativity scene. They even have their own song. We sang it this morning. We missed a verse, however, the one about smoking rubber cigars that explode. (laughs) That's a high honor, by the way. If you're a Christmas song and you get a parody like Jingle Bells, that's a high honor. <laughs> you guys know the parody of Jingle Bells, right? Batman Smells. Robin laid an egg. No? All right. Yes. Okay. But exactly who were these odd characters? Why do they get their own song? Why do they show up in the nativity scene in the first place? Where are they from? What do they come to do? And why are they so important? More than just foreign dignitaries, these magi, these wise men, they fulfill and they foreshadow as they declare Jesus to be the king. They fulfill Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. They foreshadow the end of history as they center our attention on this child-born king. And that's why they're important. We have to pay attention to their origin, and we have to pay attention to their intent to come to this understanding of their importance. And I don't want to burst anyone's bubble. I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings this morning, but we know far less about these magi than we think we do. For example, we think that there were three magi that came because Matthew mentions three gifts that were given. There may have been more than three. There may have been less than three. Gary Larson, who is uh, both an eminent theologian and cartoonist, he believes that there were four wise men but the fourth got kicked out because he brought fruitcake. (laughs) And rightly so. 
He got the boot with the banjo boy. But in all seriousness, though, in all seriousness, Matthew, Matthew is the only gospel account that includes their visit. He doesn't actually mention their number. He never mentions their name. He only says where they came from. He only says what they came to do, and therein lies their importance. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And they said, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Origin and intent. They are from the east of Judea. And if we take uh, our cues from the earliest church and early church history, if we, if we take our cues and thinking, we would place them, the Magi, from Arabia. In five of his writings uh, around the year A.D. 180, Justin Martyr simply stated that the Magi were from Arabia, and he offers no evidence for that statement, acting as if it were common or assumed knowledge. And so as we begin to understand the Magi and understand where they came from, we must first recognize that these Magi who came with the intention of worshiping the child born in Bethlehem were first Gentiles. That is to say, they were not part of the Jewish people that had been scattered around the Mediterranean region. They were outside being brought in. And not only were they Gentiles, folks, they were pagan in their practice. It wasn't uncommon. It had been done before where a Gentile would come into the Jewish people through conversion. These were not such people. They were pagan in their outlook, pagan in their practice. Commonly called wise men, the term magi refers to sorcerers, magicians, to astronomers, astrologers, people who study the stars and then apply the movements of the stars to particular events that are happening within the world. And in the ancient Near East and ancient Persia, for example, astrologers had an intense interest in charting the movement of the stars and connecting those movements in the heavenlies with political events around the world. History tells us, in fact, uh, historian Suetonius and Tacitus, they tell us that there was an ancient expectation that a world ruler would come from Judea. Astrologers thought that stars would move in some way to proclaim the birth of a great person. So here we have these Gentile pagans seeing stars moving, heavenly alignment, and they say, wow, fulfillment, the world ruler has come in Judea. And so they go. These wise men, these magi from Arabia, perhaps Babylon, saw the, the great sign in the heavens. They understood it to mean that an important ruler, one with a worldwide impact, can we call him a cosmic king, had been born in Judea. And so they go to find him. That's where they're from, these pagan Gentiles. They go to find him in their intent, which they clearly state to Herod, to look for the world's king born in Judea because they want to see him, worship him, and honor him. St. Matthew tells us then that when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh, nary a fruitcake to be found. Gold, and frankincense, and myrrh, gifts fit for a king. 
All three of these gifts are associated with royalty in the ancient world. And in their giving, these Gentile and pagan wise men, they honor Jesus as the king of the world. This is their origin, this is their intent, and thus this is their importance. Gentile pagans who came to find the king of the world and honor him. This is a big deal because this is fulfillment of prophecy. The Magi's importance connected to their origin, connected to their intent, as they fulfill prophecies made in the Old Testament, and they foreshadow for us the end of history. This morning, we read together responsively from Psalm 72. And in its original context, Psalm 72 is a a mixture of both prayer and praise. It prays for God's blessing to be upon the king of Israel. It prays for a righteous and just kingdom, a righteous and just rule and reign. And it ends with doxology, which is praise of God. In the first seven verses of Psalm 72, which we heard this morning, we we find the request that God would give the king to be just, to be righteous, that the kingdom itself would be just and righteous, that the kingdom would be prosperous where the poor, the children of the needy, and the oppressed would be delivered. The prayer is that the king would be so anointed by God to rule in righteousness and justice that his reign would be like that of the fresh rain that falls upon the earth. In verses 8 through 14 of Psalm 72, the prayer is for the boundaries of the kingdom to extend globally from the river to the ends of the earth, and that this kingdom would truly be international and inclusive of all peoples, all tribes, and all nations. The psalm prays, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. The mention of the kings coming before this king of Israel probably means that you know, where the leader goes, there goes the nation. And so as the king comes, he's, he's symbolic of the entirety of the nation coming to bow down and serve the king of Israel. Of Israel. And finally, as this psalm connected to King Solomon, finally, as it builds to its doxological end, the, the prayer is built around the greatness of the kingdom. This worldwide, global kingdom marked by righteousness and marked by justice, that it would be, the prayer is that it would be great, that it would be prosperous and abundantly filled, and that the king's name would endure forever as he blessed people and as all nations blessed him, called him blessed. This psalm, Psalm 72, it reflects upon foreign dignitaries coming to the king of Israel whose kingdom extends to the entirety of the world, cosmic, and offering to that king gifts, honor, worship, and tribute. This psalm reflects Gentiles being included in the kingdom of God that stretches around the globe and is united under the leadership of one king. And about this psalm, scholar Walter Kaiser has commented, this psalm is a direct messianic prediction because it uses the future tense throughout and because not even Solomon in all his glory could have fulfilled what is said here. This magi then, these foreign dignitaries, come out of the nations with gifts and tribute. And they honor Jesus as the cosmic king, the king of the world. They fulfill it. This morning, we also heard 
uh, from Isaiah chapter 60. And here the prophet Isaiah addresses Zion, the city of Jerusalem, and promises it future glory, not because of who it is or who resides within it, but because of the one who is coming. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Isaiah is picturing here in chapter 60 a a reordering of the world due to the arrival of the glory of the Lord. A reordering of the created order, the created world that includes Gentile peoples, those not of Israel, being brought into the kingdom of God and rendering honor and tribute, praise and worship to the Lord, to Yahweh, the triune God of the Bible. In Matthew chapter 2, we see the Magi, pagan, Gentiles, respond to the grace of God and bring royal gifts out of the nations and present them before Jesus, the glory of the Lord, the true and eternal cosmic king. The Magi are important because they fulfill. And the Magi are important because they focus us on Jesus. This is the one more thing that we must consider about our friends, these, these magi, as sometimes we refer to them in our house as these wise guys. In fulfilling these prophecies, especially Isaiah's, they center upon Jesus. That is to say, it isn't just any king of Israel that Psalm 72 is talking about ultimately is the Messiah. It is Jesus. And it's, this is also to say that Isaiah 60 is recentered away from the city of Jerusalem and upon Jesus the King. I think it's worth quoting a scholar by the name of Kenneth Bailey at length here. When he writes this, Although the glorious events projected for honoring the city of Jerusalem never happened, the gospel authors perceived them to be taking place in the birth of Jesus. Around the child there was a great light, and the glory of the Lord appeared. To the child came Arab wise men from the desert on camels, bringing gold and frankincense. Shepherds visited the child, not the city. The great hopes for the city were transferred to this child in a manger. Indeed, the glory of the Lord shone round about the child. The Magi come out of the nations to find the king of the cosmos, to offer him worship and honor and tribute and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, centering the fulfillment upon Jesus, the child-born king. And they also then, in their fulfillment, foreshadow for us the end of history. Near the end of the last book of the Bible, We read about the new heavens and the new earth. We read about the new Jerusalem, which is King Jesus' worldwide kingdom of righteousness and justice brought to bear upon this world. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. 
and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. In their fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament, these magi, these Gentile pagans, foreshadow for us the way it all ends, which is recognition and honor to the cosmic king, Christ. Again, from Kenneth Bailey, the earthly Jerusalem is appropriately a place of pilgrimage, worship, and reflection, but the followers of the Christ child know that the Jerusalem that matters is the heavenly Jerusalem that comes down as a gift of God at the end of history. History ends with King Jesus bringing the fullness of his kingdom to bear upon creation in a worldwide and eternal kingdom where he will be acknowledged as the king of the cosmos. And so the Magi's importance for us, we celebrate Jesus revealing himself, the manifestation of Jesus' glory to the Gentiles on this day of Epiphany. We recognize the Magi, their importance is found in their origin, Gentile pagans, their intent to recognize the king of the cosmos as they fulfill prophecies made in the Old Testament. They center upon Jesus. They foreshadow for us the end of history. Eh, but what's the big deal? Right? It's 2019 now. This happened a long time ago. We may think we don't really know when the end of history is going to come, but maybe not this afternoon, so we can put that off for a while. That happened a long time ago. What's the big deal now? I'm glad you asked because it is a big deal. Uh, By way of conclusion and application, let's think together about some implications of what we've heard this morning. In fulfilling, foreshadowing, and recentering, the Magi proclaim Jesus to be the king. And in this entire event, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus is revealed to be the king of of the world. How do we respond to that? What do we do with that? And I think this is where the real difficulty and the real confrontation lie. There can only be one king. How do we respond then when Jesus makes claim to be king? How do we respond when Jesus is revealed to be the king? How do we respond when Jesus is proclaimed by the Magi, revealed in the word of God to be king? Our passage from Matthew chapter 2 actually offers us the only two possible options. What we do when Jesus is proclaimed king, we either respond like Herod or we respond like the pagan Gentile magi. And the contrast there is, I think, telling. The magi show their attraction. They show their recognition of the legitimate king. They're willing to go and kneel to prostrate themselves and recognize this tiny baby born and laying in a manger. At this point, they're in a house, but they're to recognize a child born the king of the world. And Herod wants nothing to do with it. More to the fact, Herod, rather than acknowledge Jesus to be the king, Herod finds it more appropriate to attempt to kill him. So we have acceptance on the one hand of the king and all of that means, and we have rejection on the other hand of the king and all of that means. There's only two options when it comes to Jesus. We either respond with hostility, like Herod. We're troubled by the announcement of a new king. We're thrown off balance, angered and provoked by the revelation of the legitimate King Jesus. 
Well, we acknowledge that he does indeed rule over us. We acknowledge that he is indeed the king of the cosmos, and we submit to his rule and reign. There's only two options. The one thing we can never be is neutral about Jesus. It is impossible to be neutral about Jesus. There is a human tendency, and it isn't just Herod, it isn't just narcissistic megalomaniacs who have it, but a human tendency to expect, demand even, to be the king of our own life. To be, as I've often quoted, the master of my fate, the captain of my soul, and the epiphany of Jesus, the manifestation of the glory of the Christ, the cosmic king, runs directly into that human tendency, doesn't it? Tim Keller, as he usually does, puts the struggle so well. If you want to be king and someone else comes along saying he is the king, then one of you has to give in. Only one person can sit on an absolute throne. Who sits on the throne of your life? Who sits on the throne of your innermost being? To whom do you submit? Who is your king? The simple reality is this, folks. We need a king. We need a king that doesn't just hand down edicts and laws, but a king that can change our hearts, change our being. We need a king who can change our being and thus change our doing. And the only king in all of history, past, present, and future, who can do that is Jesus. And so no one can be neutral about Christ. Jesus is, as Kent Edwards has put it, the great polarizer. He's like a magnet. Some he repels and some he attracts. One will either recognize that Jesus is the king of the cosmos and respond with trust and belief and enter into a lifelong process empowered by the Holy Spirit but with our own effort submitting to his rule and reign. Or one will simply reject his rule for the sake of their own self-rule and that's not neutral. It can be and it is painful to recognize and to admit that Jesus is king. It can be and is painful to submit to Jesus yearly, monthly, weekly, daily, hourly, and minutely. But the alternative is self-rule. And we don't have to work very hard to see where self-rule gets us. Self-rule is evidence throughout Scripture in such places as the book of Judges, where there was no king in Israel. They all did what was right in their own eyes. leads to idolatry, dehumanization of ourselves and others, callous indifference, chaos, and ruin. We need a king that will bring a kingdom of justice and righteousness in us first. We need a king who will bring a kingdom of justice and righteousness upon this created world, upon this created order, We need somebody who is worthy of worship, who is worthy to sit upon the throne in our lives. And when I look in the mirror, I know it ain't me. And I don't think I'm alone in that. Now, perhaps you're here today, and perhaps you've not recognized Jesus as the King and the Savior. I'm going to challenge you. What are you going to do with this today? Is God calling you to do that today? Is God calling you to recognize Jesus, the King? Is God calling you to come into His kingdom under the rule and the reign of the righteous and just, compassionate King who is Jesus? Perhaps you're here today and you've already trusted Jesus as the King and Savior, but perhaps now that I've said these things, you're wondering, well, who is it exactly that rules in my life? Is it King Self or is it King Jesus? Is God calling you to repent and to return, to kneel before the righteous and just, compassionate king 
who is Jesus. Perhaps he's calling you, us, back into the ongoing effort fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit to be brought fully under the reign of the true king of the cosmos, Jesus. The epiphany of Jesus, the manifestation of his glory to the Gentiles found here in Matthew chapter 2 with its connections to fulfillment, with its foreshadowing, it calls us to decide about just who is king in the now and in the future. The revealing of Jesus the king calls us to act, to respond. It calls us to believe. Jesus is the king. He was born the king. Jesus died and rose and ascended the king. And Jesus will return the king. When he does, will he find you one of his subjects? And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly and gracious God, we, we praise you. This is good news that you have broken into your created world with the king, this child born king. Father, help us. Give us courage and strength by the power of the Holy Spirit to face the truth about ourselves, to turn to Jesus and surrender to him as our king every day, hour by hour, minute by minute. Let us be, we pray, in the power of the Holy Spirit, good and faithful subjects of the one true king. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and worship our Lord.